0: Well, today, as as the church in Ukraine is scattered, close to a million people already possibly leaving the the country, the gospel is going to go to Poland and it's going to go to all the other countries in the area. And so I want to just stop for a moment and pray for the church in Ukraine. Before we get started, before we jump into our text this morning, let's bow our heads and pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord God, I lift up your church in Ukraine. Your church around the world, but right now they are in, in the, the target. And so, Lord, I pray for strength for your church. I pray that they would find their strength and their peace in you, in your word, that you are a great God, that you are greater than any of these circumstances, Lord, as we sang this morning. But Lord, I pray that you would also embolden them to share the gospel, embolden them to share the reason for a hope that they have that makes no sense in the situation they're in. And so, Lord, as they either stay in Ukraine, I pray that You'd give them strength for, for the, the fight. But if they, if they go to safety, I pray that You'd give them strength and boldness to share the Gospel. And Lord, I pray that five years from now, we're looking back on this, and, and no matter the, the historical rhetoric about it, Lord, I pray that we're looking back and saying that was a time when God grew His church in Europe. And that was a time when God was spreading the gospel and so lord we pray for our brothers and sisters and we pray for boldness lord and that we would have that same boldness here and that we would stand with them but that we'd also stand for the gospel here lord thank you for your church in your name amen the other thing i was thinking of as i was preparing this week we talked about the conversion of saul And just how awful that was for the church. And it would be really hard when Saul, last week we said when Saul came to Jerusalem, it would be really hard to welcome him with open arms, right? Because he was killing Christians, beating them, men and women, torturing them, taking them away. I wonder what would happen. And maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but this is where my mind goes sometimes. What if Putin was saved and came to church in Ukraine next week? maybe that starts to help us understand how scared the church was and not come down on them, but understand that when you have someone that has been doing these things and that's what you know, it can be really hard to overcome. But in Saul Paul's case, the gospel overcame that. And the gospel overcame that in mighty ways. So I was just thinking about that. Today we're going to talk a little bit about God overcoming barriers, God overcoming boundaries as God is now preparing the church for the next stage for the next scene of what's happening in acts we we leave the saul piece for a minute because we saw his conversion we saw what happened and god was getting this chess piece in place for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book of acts so saul is ready now to reach gentiles saul is ready with the gospel but now is the church ready at the time Are they ready to accept Gentiles in? Are they ready to reach out to what they would call dogs and and reach them for the gospel? And so what we're going to see in the next couple of chapters is God's going to work on this piece. And God's going to change hearts and God's going to get His church ready because God is doing a work here that will not be stopped. And so we're going to see God deal with some of the prejudice, some of the, um, the animosity, that the Jews had toward the Gentiles. You know, speaking of um animosity and not wanting to to create a division in the church, I do have to say congrats to Grove's basketball team um, winning their, their championship last night. Now I know half of you hate Grove. <laughs> and half of you went to Grove. And so um <laughs> congratulations. But we can we can have these fun rivalries. What the church and the Jews felt toward the Gentiles was not a fun rivalry. It was a hatred. It was a despising that is hard for us to understand. And so today we're going to look at the first of three weeks, probably, as we look at the scenes that God used to prepare the church through the conversion of Cornelius. Two of the events today, you might think, well, how does that fit? And hopefully by the end of the day, you'll be like, oh, okay, because when we come to scripture, I want us to be asking, why did the Holy Spirit inspire that to be in the word? Why did he direct that to be in the word? And our first two stories today just seem like they're coming out of the blue, but they're setting up the story of Peter and Cornelius. So if I had to summarize today, God works powerfully through Peter to spread the gospel, even while preparing him to get past his own prejudice and reach Gentiles. Let me repeat that. God works powerfully through Peter to spread the gospel even while preparing him to get past his own prejudice and reach Gentiles. And so we have a situation where Peter's a leader in the church. He's fighting this his prejudice. He's fighting some of the animosity. We know that from some of the later writings, some of what's said. It's a blind spot is what I'm calling it today. His view towards Gentiles is a blind spot. It's an area where God hasn't fully sanctified him yet, but it's coming. And, and and we're going to see that transition today. But God is using him in the meantime in powerful ways in, in ministry around Judea, around Jerusalem. And praise God, he still uses us before we're perfect, right? Praise God. And we're going to see that on display. And God is going to show his power to Peter, show his power through Peter in a couple of comfortable settings and then say, okay, let's try the uncomfortable. Let's deal with some of your animosity. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we'll be looking starting at verse 32. We'll finish chapter 9 and do the first eight verses of chapter 10. And we'll tie these three different stories together. And and we will ask the question, why is, is, the, is God putting these together in Scripture? And what He's doing is showing peter grace by showing his power showing that peter is being used but he's gradually taking him more and more towards the uncomfortable assessment of his blind spots and we'll get into the heart of that next week but acts chapter 9 verse 32 and in those first three verses 32 through 35 we see god's power is displayed as peter faithfully ministers to his own people and many come to jesus and you'll see some of those same phrases in each of the points because I'm trying to show a progression through these three stories of what God is doing and that God is superintending this whole process. And he's changing hearts and he's addressing blind spots and he's, he's using Peter. But in this first story, God's power is displayed as Peter faithfully ministers to his own people. And many come to Jesus. And so we, we find Peter now in comfortable settings with, with Jews, with the people he knows, And in verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lida. Lida, sorry. And we see Peter coming on the scene, and he's ministering to the churches around Jerusalem. He's ministering to the Jewish congregations there, and, and, and he's going from church to church. He is faithfully checking up on churches. He is shepherding. And he comes to Lida, and and this morning we'll have several maps. And so just to, to give us one of the maps, he's in Jerusalem and he comes down. I know that's up, but remember Jerusalem's in the hills. He comes down to Lydda, which is in the plains here, almost to the Mediterranean Sea. But he's been ministering to churches all through this region, giving them the apostles' teaching, doing evangelism. He's doing what Acts 2 talks about the church doing. And so he gets here and he's with the believers there, it says. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, He came down also to the saints. Remember, that's a description of just Christians, not super Christians. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a saint. You and I are saints, which is really cool and gives us something to live up to. So he comes down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, and so Aeneas is this man, probably in the church, we don't know that for sure, but some of the language tends to think he's, he's a believer here. For eight years, it says, who was paralyzed. So for eight years, he hasn't been able to get out of bed. A little different then. They didn't have like great wheelchairs and, and all this assistance. This meant you're bedridden, literally. It meant you're weighted on hand and foot. And everyone knows that he's in this condition because it's been eight years. In 34, and this is just a quick story, 34, and Peter said to him, Anais, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make it, make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And so in this quick story here, we see that Luke the storyteller setting up God's power. Look at what God's doing in the in the Jews. Look at what God's doing around. And we come to Lida and Anais here is healed. Now, a word about healing, not everyone that the apostles came across was healed. Not everyone that Jesus came across was healed. Jesus and the apostles are following the work of Jesus here. The healings would happen when God was looking to do a work and validate a work that he was doing. And so here God is doing a work in this area and Peter comes and through the Holy Spirit sees Anas, and, and, and sees that God wants him to heal him. A couple of other key phrases there in verse 34. Peter acknowledges that he's not the one healing. There's a, there's a, a, a mode of humility here. Peter's been through a lot. We haven't always seen humble Peter. We've seen brash Peter in the Gospels. We've seen arrogant Peter. We've seen Peter that fails. I love this Peter. Jesus Christ heals you. He was ch- He was simply a conduit of Jesus' power. He was a conduit of Jesus' grace. And so He says, "Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed, roll up your bedroll." For instance, and immediately He rose. And this whole story should make us think back to some of the healings of Jesus and Jesus in the paralytic. Because Luke is also showing that the apostles are continuing the work of Jesus. To have Him rise and make your bed is, is really a sign, a proof of His healing. If He says you're healed, but just lay there and hang out for a couple more years, that doesn't show anything. Get up. Make your bed. And it shows that God's healing was immediate and it was complete and he had the power to do this, the strength to do this. And immediately he rose. And look at the, the, the result in 35. And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now the all there is, an, is is an inclusive all. It doesn't mean every soul came to Christ, but that it was a pervasive knowledge in the area of what God had done, and people turned to God. And so Peter is used just through faithful ministry to the churches, to people he knows, to the Jews that he's comfortable with. God uses that to reach a whole region. Back to our map. Oh, it's still up there. Um, So Lydda is here. Sharon is not a city. You see the word here. Sharon is the whole plains here, all the way from Lydda and actually almost up to Carmel, which is up here. And and so it's this whole region And it speaks to the power of what God has done, the amazement people had that Anais was able to walk. Now just as an aside, think of Anais for a minute. The guy was bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. Why was that allowed to happen? And we can say a fallen world, and that's the source of it. We should know that sin sin is what caused that. A fallen world is what caused that. But God chose to use that struggle, God chose to use that trial to introduce a whole region to Jesus Christ. Worth it? I hope so. I hope so. And we see these, these throughout Acts, we see these bit players that aren't bit players. They're just faithful men and women serving God. We're going to see it in the next story too that God uses for His purposes. Village, no matter what we go through, if it's used for God's purposes, it's worth it. It's worth it. God will not waste your circumstances. God will not let those go unchecked. There will be justice eventually. But for now, He is using it for His glory and His message. If we will be part of that. If we will be part of that. We're going to see that in the next story too. And so this is a quick story. Peter, close to home. People he's comfortable with. He obeys God. God's power is on display. People come to him. So far so good? So now we get to the next story and Peter moves a little bit further away from Jerusalem, a little bit more uncomfortable situation that we're going to talk about Joppa here in a minute. But again, Peter's quick response and obedience to Christ causes many to come to Jesus. So point number two, God's power is displayed. Again, same wording. God's power is displayed through Peter's quick response to hurting Jews, and many come to Jesus. God's power is displayed through Peter's quick response to hurting Jews, and many come to Jesus. And so in this case, he's still dealing with the Jewish church. He's still dealing with people he's comfortable with. But the setting is a little bit more Gentile. The setting is a little bit more Roman that we're going to see, starting at verse 36. Let me read this section, and then we'll look at it. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Again, another miracle. This should remind us back to when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and, and very similar wording, similar story. But do you notice that Luke is using the same sequence? This was the call. This was the obedience. This happened and many came to Christ. There's, there's intentionality in how he's writing this. And so as we go through this, we have to talk about Joppa a little bit. And you see on the map that Joppa is on the coast. So Joppa is over here. It's modern-day Joffa. Um, and so Peter is here, and he gets the message from the disciples in Joppa that Dorcas here, or Tabitha, has passed away. So we have, we have a, a furthering of distance on geography we have a, a bigger miracle. I think you could argue raising from the dead is a little bit bigger than healing someone that's paralyzed. And we see God's escalating power as he is doing something in the church and he is acting in amazing ways. Joppa was about 12 miles from Lydda and it was basically within the modern day of Tel Aviv. So if, if you if you think of Tel Aviv, some of you have flown into Tel Aviv with us. Um, that's real close to where Joppa is. Joppa was. It is a Roman-controlled city. So we moved from Jewish-controlled cities and settlements to now this was a Roman-controlled city. It was one of the major ports at the time, the only natural harbor, although we're going to see from the next story that um, there was a, a man-made harbor that um, Herod decided he wanted his own thing. And so um, he built his own city and harbor. But Joppa was also still a major trade city. And we see Tabitha, or Dorcas, who is a disciple of the Lord. She's a follower of the Lord. And and look at what she's doing. Do, do you see what she's doing? She's in ministry, right? She's ministering to the widows. She's providing needs to the widows, whether it be clothing or tunics or whatever. It says that, that she is, is doing all these things full of good works and acts of charity which was a Jewish tradition. Those were part of the Jewish faith and the Christian church had, had, had said, that's what God wants us to do too. And so full of good works and acts of charity, she is a powerful force in the church. She is ministering in the church. And again, the question might be, why is she the one that dies? God is using her in ministry. She's being used in powerful ways and, and we can ask God why, but we rarely get the why other than pointing to what he's doing. Another than pointing to His greatness. And here again, in those days, in 37, she became ill and died. And then they when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And so God again is going to use a trial, a tragedy, a pillar in the church that passes away, and He's going to use her to expand the Gospel. And I bet it was worth it for her. And so they lay her in the upper room, which which just as an aside, this is sort of a weird weird process. Usually in, in Jewish law, you would bury someone right away or prepare them for burial right away. You wouldn't stick them in an upper room and wait um, because you had to do things by sundown. I think this speaks to the faith of the church. And and they bring her upstairs, they wash her, and instead of saying, Let's bury her, they say, Let's go get Peter because they know their God. And they know their power, the power of their God. We, we sang about that in several of the songs this morning about the greatness of our God. And oh, when there's trouble and when there's tragedy and when there's situations we don't know what to do, we've got to come back to the greatness of our God. We've got to come back to that truth and cling to that and hold to that. God is great. We are not. So let's trust the One who is. And that's what I think we're seeing here. And so in verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing Peter was there, they sent two men to him, urging him. And so they they summoned him, please come to us without delay. This is setting up the next story in, in, in terms of writing style. Because now we have a Jewish church in need. They send for Peter. They send a couple guys and say, come to us. What does Peter do? He goes, right? He rises, goes to them, he goes right away. When he, when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows, the mourners are there. The widows are part of the mourners. They stood behind him weeping. They're showing him, look what Dorcas did. Look, she was amazing in the church. She ministered to me this way. She ministered to me this way. And Peter put them all outside. Just like Jesus did, by the way, when, when he raised Jairus' daughter. And he puts them out. Get out. Okay, no, nicer than that. Why don't you all go outside? And what does Peter do? He kneels down and prays. Again, he's conscious. It's not his power he's ministering by. Jesus healed the paralyzed man. Now here, he's asking God to do a miracle. And this shows his dependence on God. His go-to is that he prayed. So we see prayer on display throughout Acts. We've seen it over and over and over. Prayer is on display. Peter isn't like the magician that can just touch someone and they're healed. But he is he is a conduit of what God is doing. I'm reminded of, of James 5. As we look at James 5 and the instruction there, if someone is sick among you, let him call the elders and let them pray. And that's what we practice at Village. If, if someone is sick, you can call the elders. We'll come and, and pray and anoint with oil. Because that is what James says to do. And I think that's really what we're seeing here. They call Peter. Peter prays. And Peter prays for whatever God is going to do here. And then he looks at her. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And and again, just for fun, the parallels with Jairus' daughter are amazing. In this one, it's Tabitha Kumi. In that one, it's Talitha Kumi. It's one-letter difference from the command of Jesus. And, and I think that's a way of showing that this is continuing the work of Jesus. And unlike trying to get teenagers out of bed, she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I think I owe my teenagers a dollar. <laughs> um, She opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. And then he presented her. Then calling the saints, the Christians, and the widows, he presented her alive. And again, we have the same sequence now of the results. And it became known throughout all Joppa. So this is now the coastal region, bigger town, Gentile town. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. And so now ministry is going well. People are coming to Christ. He stays there. It's successful ministry. He's building the church. And we've seen God's power on display in powerful ways and mighty ways to the Jewish church twice now. And I really think God is setting up a pattern for Peter to teach him. Because now he's going to give him the same opportunity to reach and show God's power to Gentiles. And how is he going to respond? How is he going to respond? Is this the same Christ that wants to reach Gentiles? Is that same power available for Gentiles? And that's the setup for the next story and the setup for what God is doing in his church. And it's compounded by now, now Peter has successful ministry here. The church is growing. Why would he even want to leave? Why why not stay? We already saw Philip had successful ministry in Samaria and God called him away. And so many times we want to rest and stay with what's successful and what we think is working. And we forget to reach out and take steps out of our comfort zone for Jesus. We can get into our lives and we get like, we have a good life. I'm discipling my children. Things are going well. And we forget God wants to push us out of our comfort zone to do something great for Him just by sharing the gospel in faithful ways. There's another aspect to this too of end of 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. And I cannot... This is, this is my own imagination here for a minute, Okay. I imagine Luke, as he's writing this, sort of chuckling as he writes that. Simon, a tanner. Jews hate tanners. <laughs> tanners are, are, what are they doing? They're killing animals. You have a stench in this house. They're considered unclean. And, and so this would be a, a place where Peter now is being stretched, but it's where he was. And some have said maybe it didn't bother him because he didn't really care about Judaism and the norms. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. I, th- I think this is stretching him a little bit. But that's just, that's just a guess. I don't know that. But I think God is bringing Peter along even by where he stays. And God is softening him and his prejudice against Gentiles. Because now he's in a town with a lot of Gentiles. He's staying with someone who would be considered unclean. But he's still being used by God. And so this sets up the next story. Peter has been ministering to Jewish Christians. And remember, all of this, Peter is the the head of the church. And so what happens with Peter is going to direct where the church goes with this. And Peter has ministered to Jewish Christians. He's led Jewish people to Christ. He's quickly come to the aid of the Jewish church. And so how would he be with Gentiles? How would he be with the people he hates and despises And has a lot of animosity for. You know, again, how would we be if God called us to minister to the high officials in Moscow right now? It'd be hard. It'd be hard. And so when we get to chapter 10, this is setting up a pivotal encounter where Jesus, by his grace, has brought Peter along and ready to be taught rather than just slamming Peter against the wall with his views. And so we come to one through eight. And we're just going to do the setup today and next week we'll get how the change actually happens, okay? But the setup today that, that is really parallel to the prior two stories, starting at verse 10, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And again, like I've said before, I, 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 this goes back to vinyl and records. I hear the needle just going, because it's like, what just happened here? And because... Now Cornelius is a centurion. He's in the Roman army. He's in the Italian cohort. He's a Gentile. So not only is he a Gentile, but he's a Roman. These are two major strikes against him. Now Caesarea, like I said, was a big town. And you see that up here. And so um, this is where Cornelius is. We're going to see Peter go there next week. I guess that's giving away um, spoilers. But, um, and so Caesarea is a seaport town. A, a huge town. It's really the, the capital, the Roman capital of the area, um, not the, the capital of Rome, but of the region. This is where they maintained governance over the region. And it's a, it's a beautiful port town. It's about 30 miles north of Joppa, built by Herod the Great. In fact, Herod built a palace there, one of many palaces he built. He was sort of into himself. And this, this palace has what you could maybe argue was the first infinity pool. And so the, the pool was out on the edge of the Mediterranean and the lip of the pool sort of died into the Mediterranean. Now today when you visit it, the Mediterranean has risen a little bit and, and the pool is part of the Mediterranean Sea. But you can walk through it and see. So I have some pictures here, I think, of this. Um, there we go. Okay, so this is part this is a small part that has been uncovered of Caesarea, and Herod's palace is out here. He built it on a jetty out into the water. His pool is actually out over here, and the water's here, and he built this amazing palace. He built an amphitheater here, which still stands today, and um, for thousands of people. In fact, they were committed to entertainment, so this was a hippodrome where they did chariot races and things like that. And and it was a little smoother at the time. They've unearthed some things, but this has um, a track there. Um, Down over here is an aqueduct where they actually brought in water from Mount Carmel in that region, and they brought in their own fresh water, and they built this entire stone aqueduct for that. They had indoor theaters. They had all kinds of things happening in this town. It was a beautiful place. In fact, here, Herod built his own harbor. Like I said, Joppa was the only natural harbor. Herod liked this place, so he was one of the first to use a type of concrete that hardens underwater. We thought that was just recent. And he built a breakwater and built his own harbor. It's just sort of what Herod did. Remember, Herod's the one that built Masada and the, the, the palace on top of Masada. Um, he, he wanted a palace... Um, South of Bethlehem, so he built a mountain, um, Herodium, and built a palace, and, or built a, a fortress rather inside that palace. And so, this is the kind of, of setting that Caesarea was. It was a high Roman presence. It would have had the most Roman presence out of any, anywhere in the region. Like I said, center of government for the, the Roman pres, um, presence there. Cornelius is a Gentile centurion of the Italian cohort. Cohort, cohort, can't even say that. Um, his family is with him, so he's probably lived here a while. He has some status here. A centurion probably commanded about 100 men. So this is a, a, a guy that was high up in the army. A cohort was probably 600 men. So a cohort would have six centurions that commanded them. And so again, he's a Gentile Roman army. That's who's come on the scene in chapter 10, verse 1. And you can see as as you're reading this, if you were in a Jewish audience, you'd have boo, boo, hiss, like the first time Darth Vader comes on. And it just would be that kind of attitude. And then verse 2 starts to ruin the whole story. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay then. Somehow this Gentile had had heard about God, probably not about Jesus yet, because we're going to see that, why, this is why Peter's asked to go. But he's heard about Judaism and somehow has come to a fear of God, a belief in God, to the point where he's giving generously, which is one of the, the virtues of Judaism. He's praying continually to God, so he's seeking God with the information he has. He has incomplete information, incomplete revelation, but he's seeking God and what he has. And, and so in verse 3, the story goes on because we're going to see God answer his prayer. About the ninth hour of the day, or about three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. I don't know what the angel sounded like. That's my guess. And, and he, being Cornelius, stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Yeah, I, I, I can relate with that, because when people fear God, when people understand who's showing up on the scene, there is a fear that goes with it, a, a terror, it says here. Now, what's interesting, I, I mentioned three in the afternoon. A couple reasons why I think Luke mentions that. Number one, it's the middle of the day, so it's not like he's having a nightmare. He, it's in the middle of the day, but three o'clock in the afternoon also was one of the times that you prayed in Judaism. So quite possibly, God is showing up while he's praying. Which is really, I think that's really neat. I think that's, that's uh, uh, quite plausible here. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? He answers him respectfully, knows who it is. And he said to him, God said to Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Like the smoke rising from a sacrifice, I've, I've seen it and I'm, I'm here to answer. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. (laughs) He is lodging with one Simon a tanner. Those are two different Simons, by the way. So you have Simon Peter, Simon the tanner, um, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, what does Cornelius do? He called two of his servants and a devout soldier. Whenever you see devout there, we saw it earlier of Cornelius, that probably means a God-fearing man, so a soldier that also feared God from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so we have this powerful man. Powerful, but in many ways hated just because he was a Gentile and because he was a Roman soldier. But he's trying to, to, to fear God. He's trying to follow God. He's praying to God. He's not a proselyte to Judaism because we find out later he's not circumcised. So he's He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And he's acting on that incomplete faith and God honored that to give him more revelation. Which, just as an aside, I've often seen cases and heard cases as missionaries tell stories of when people begin to respond to God with incomplete revelation, with what they can see, as Romans 1 would say, what they can see even in nature, that God then brings more revelation and God then brings ways for them to hear the Gospel. And so we could say, well, what about those that haven't heard? But as they respond to what they know, God gives them more revelation in general. And in this case, in Cornelius, he was given that additional revelation. I love the fact, again, prayers mentioned. Peter's praying as he he raises Dorcas from the dead. Here Cornelius is praying continually to God and we see men that are fearing God, men that are coming under God's power that are in submission to God. And at that point it doesn't matter what skin color he has. It doesn't matter what army he's part of. The past doesn't matter. What matters is where is his heart for Jesus or for God in this case and it's going to be changed as he finds out about Jesus. Don't neglect prayer. Don't neglect prayer. God used it in Dorcas's life or from Peter to raise Dorcas from the dead. He's using it and answering it for the centurion. I love what D.L. Moody said about prayer. Behind every work of God, you will always find some kneeling form. I was thinking about that and trying to think, well, do I know any exceptions to that? I'm not sure I do. Prayer accompanies the work of God. Because prayer empowers the work of God. And so we come to the ninth hour and the angel uses his name and he says, go, go. And he obeyed immediately. And it's setting, up a, it's setting up an interesting comparison because now when Peter is asked to do something, will he obey like the centurion? Will he obey as quickly? Will he overcome his prejudice? Will he overcome his hatred? and obey in that way. One other interesting... uh, Scripture is full of ways that things come together. Um, Do you remember anything about Joppa in the Old Testament? What? Jonah. Joppa is where Jonah went to flee the call of God because he hated the people God called him to. And here we are, 500 years later, God is going to call a man again to go to a people he hates. And again, he's going to want to do a work in a people that's outside of the common understanding of of where God would go. And we're going to find out next week what Peter does. Is he going to be Jonah? Or is he going to be Cornelius? And so God is using all this to confront a blind spot in Peter. For Peter, it was a race thing. He struggled with this. He, in fact, he's going to continue to struggle with it to the point that Paul has to readdress it in Galatians, which is a really fascinating story. And before we come down on Peter, though, my, my argument today is we all have blind spots. None of us have been transformed into complete Christ likeness yet. We all have people that we struggle with. We all have people that, that we're not sure God can save. We all have sins that we struggle with, and and, and those blind spots always affect ministry. When we have sin, when we have, you know, whether it be deception in our lives or lies in our life or whatever it may be, what other sins, that affects ministry. It affects our walk with God. Now, praise God, He can still use us before we're perfect, but He's going to deal with those blind spots. And he's doing that with Peter. And like I said, in his grace, he's set Peter up to be taught. And we're going to see what happens. So some lessons just to conclude today. Lessons that I hope that we get out of this story. And, and most of these I've already mentioned. Um, but I love lists. So I just put them together. The first one, God uses imperfect people with blind spots. This morning the takeaway isn't I have blind spots, I have things God's working on so I can't minister. That's not the takeaway. If you go out the door with that, that's the wrong message. The message is let's be faithful where God is calling us and see what God does with that even with our blind spots. Because God is the one doing the work. God is the one who raised the paralytic, Aeneas. God is the one who raised Dorcas from the dead. God is the one orchestrating Cornelius to call Peter. Peter. And so he sends two people plus the soldier to Peter. But God uses imperfect people with blind spots. Second lesson there. God is constantly refining us and working on our blind spots. So the other side of this is we don't want to go away and say, well, God can powerfully use me with my blind spots, so I'm good with my blind spots. I don't even have to address them because God can still work. That's not the message either. If you go out with that, we've, we've missed the text. And especially next week's text. I know some of these apply to both weeks. But God is constantly refining us and constantly working on our blind spots. Degree by degree, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. And often, when God attacks our blind spots the hardest, He's preparing us for an advancement in ministry. And we're going to see that with Peter and the church. And it's just going to blow up what God does with the gospel. But God has to address this first. And there's times God painfully addresses things in our lives and sin in our lives. Reveals sin sometimes that we don't want revealed that we want to keep secret so that God can do a greater work in our lives. Don't miss the greater work by holding on to what you cling to. Third, third fourth, and fifth are questions to ask as we, as we look at these lessons. Do we hold on to hints of racism? do we hold on to hints of racism? And this can be skin color, this can be culture, this can be status. We have all kinds of ways to have prejudice against people. We're really creative on this one. Because we want to make ourselves feel better and we want to make ourselves feel like we're on top of something and we have this hierarchy nonsense in our head when it comes to the gospel. And so we have to ask the question, do we hold on to any hints of racism? Because there's no place for it. There's no place for it in the gospel. And you've heard me say that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Because every person in this room is a sinner. Every person in this room deserves God's wrath. Every person in this room has been extended God's grace and and given the choice of whether to accept it or not. Every person. And so if I start to to have distinctions between people and preferences between people, I now am challenging the work of God's grace. I'm now challenging that God has made us brothers and sisters. I'm challenging the equality that happens in the family of God. How dare I? And we, we, we need to come to this passionately because this... This is something God's going to take two, three chapters of Acts to deal with in Peter and he wants to deal with in his church. Because there is no place for it. As we struggle to show grace to others, no matter the situation, remember that that God has shown us more grace. Paul uses that as an argument against racism later when he says, I'm the chief of sinners. God's shown me more grace than you, so how dare I not show you grace? In situations where there's interpersonal struggles, and I see them in the church a lot, almost always both sides have been showing far more grace than they realize, and they're not admitting it. Because when we start to realize the grace God has given us, we can't help but show grace to others. We can't help it. But when we don't realize the grace God has given us, it's really hard to show that to others. And so it's okay to realize that we are sinners. It's good. But that now we're saints because of God's grace. I want to read Romans 10, 9-13. We can dig into this more in community groups this week. Paul is writing this to the church at Rome. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel right there. Your heart, believing in Christ. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul here is dealing with the same issue between Jews and Greeks and the same hatred and the same animosity. And he says, we're all saved. We're saved by the same Lord. We're saved by the same work on the cross. And so there's no distinction between them. And this was Peter's blind spot. For now. And next week, God's going to deal with it. Fourth question under Lessons. Are we willing to step outside of our comfort zones or are we satisfied with past successes? Are we willing to step outside of our comfort zones to minister? Peter's about to. And, and in, in, in a different way, like I said, we can get so caught up into what's normal in the church that we forget to step out of our comfort zones. We forget to talk to the, the heathen barista at Starbucks. I, I don't know because we have our own circles that we're comfortable with but god wants to do something so much greater if we'll step out of our comfort zones and and realize that he wants to save every soul that we see and there are no ordinary humans that you come in contact this week as cs lewis says but souls that are in need of a savior last question as we wrap up are we teachable are we teachable? The problem with blind spots is they're by definition blind. Right? They're hard to see. We're blind to them. And so to send you home and to say, I want you to write down all your blind spots, that's one of the silliest things I can have you do because we're blind to blind spots. And so how do we do it? I think of this because I'm teaching a couple to drive in our, in our house. And uh, and they're doing great, by the way. So this isn't a dollar illustration. Um, me as the dad, when they switch, switch lanes, I'm freaking out. I'm like, check your blind spot. I did. Check your, no, no, you never, we're going to die. That's my heart. I don't show that to them. <laughs> because they have checked their blind spot and they're doing great. And no one's died yet. But to deal with blind spots, we've got to be open to maybe other people saying, hey, this is a blind spot. Let's check your blind spots. Hey, what about this situation? So we've got to ask people. And I'm not saying we get up in church and ask 200 people. Have a circle of friends that you are in community with that, that are challenging each other to love Jesus and say, hey, what do you see? What's a blind spot that's keeping me from sharing the gospel? What's a blind spot that's keeping me from loving others in the church and loving everyone in the church instead of just the people I like? Ask. And don't criticize them for their answer. Don't unfriend them and unfollow them if they say something you don't like. I hope you have some friends that are honest enough to say things you don't like. To to see our blind spots, we've got to say, we, we can't see them, but we've got to acknowledge that we have them. And not come at things like we always know best. And not come at things with a critical spirit. But to say, I need to learn. We need to be teachable. And we're about to find out, was Peter teachable? Because he's about to go through one of the most amazing lessons next week that we'll see. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, Oh, your word is powerful and your word steps on our toes. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal blind spots to us, that you would, through situations, through people, that you would take away those sins that we hold to, those areas that we have not given to you that are keeping us from doing your work. God, use village in a mighty way on Buaro and in Garden Grove And may one of the first things we do be to pray to get rid of our blind spots and to genuinely love the people around us. Thank you for your word, God, in your name.